when they called me, when people called me Mr. Hebrews. <laughs> but um, they found it difficult to believe that a name could possibly begin with E and A. How, how can a name begin with two vowels? <laughs> so they called me Mr. Hebrews. But uh, looking at Hebrews chapter 9, can I read from verse 11? Hebrews 9, 11. When Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then right the way through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the, goat, the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of a defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all, which means once for all time, at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for men to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So I was introducing Hebrews the other day, yesterday, and I was saying it's written to Jews, that that's why it's called to the Hebrews. They were being persecuted. They were suffering from their fellow Jews who were offended that they 
were no longer claiming to be just Jews, they were not Christian Jews and they were believing in Jesus. And some of their fellow Jews did not like that. And so they were suffering a lot, they had lost property, they'd been put in prison. None of them had lost their lives, but they had suffered a lot. And they were discouraged and they were in danger of dropping any kind of claim to be Christian because it was getting them into such trouble. And so they were backing down from their profession of faith in Jesus and trying to have a kind of lower and a quiet view of Jesus, which you're tempted to do when you're persecuted. So this man writes to them and he says to them that what they're doing is, is a mistake. When you are in trouble, you don't lower your view of Jesus, you enlarge your view of Jesus. You don't, you don't try to sort of pretend he's not as great as you thought he was and uh, as it will hide your faith. You do the exact opposite. You see, uh, you see more of Jesus than ever. You see his power, you see his greatness. And so he's urging them and warning them not to back away from their faith, but to enlarge their faith and uh, see who Jesus is and go forward with a, a bold and confident faith. He, also, he asks them to hold on to their first assurance, to continue and by persistent faith to inherit the promises that God is making to them. And then he also wants to make the point that they, they can't just go back to being Jews because the story of Israel points to the coming of Jesus. It's just getting ready for Jesus to come. Uh, the whole point of everything God did with Israel is to prepare the way for the coming of Jesus. God took one nation and he began to teach things in that one nation. He, gave, he didn't do it with any other nation. He gave, he gave that nation a law. He gave that nation promises about what he would do for them. He said that through Abraham and somebody coming in Abraham's line, coming in the line of King David, there would come a savior of the world. Everything was getting ready for Jesus. And all the rules and regulations of the Mosaic covenant, the, the law that governed Israel, was all getting ready for Jesus. The tabernacle, the holy days, the Ten Commandments, everything, the Sabbath, Day of Atonement, everything was getting ready for Jesus. The tabernacle, this, uh, this um, symbolic building. The tabernacle was not a meeting place. Nobody ever went inside it. Only one tribe was even allowed to go through the front door. The people met outside. We, we sometimes sing that song. You know that song we sometimes use in worship? I will enter into his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. I'm sure you know that song. But have you ever thought why you only enter the gates? I mean, why did, why did you go inside the building? Well, it's taken from the Old Testament. You didn't go any further than the gates. You, you couldn't go inside. You just met outside at the gates. It wasn't a meeting place. It was a symbolical building. It symbolized things. And the inner, the inner holy of holies, only one man went in once a year. It was not a, a meeting place. It was symbolizing the coming of Jesus. And so the writer says, don't, don't back away into Judaism, that's going backwards. You need to go forwards. It was all pointing to Jesus. You need to see that Jesus is our great high priest. That high priest who went inside the Holy of Holies in the Day of Atonement in Israel's law was a picture of Jesus going into heaven and taking not the blood of some animal, presenting to the Father his own blood, telling the Father, I've died for the sins of the world. He was, as it were, presenting his own blood. And the tabernacle was just symbolizing the work of Jesus. So he's arguing this all out. He's got about five stages. I was outlining it the other day. To begin with, he talks about the greatness and the sympathy of Jesus, chapters one and two. 
And then he says Jesus is a bit like Moses, but where Moses was building a tabernacle, a house, Jesus is building a household, a family. A, the word house can mean a group of people. We talk about the queen coming from the house of Windsor. Windsor. House can mean a, a family line. Jesus is building a household, a family. And then he talks about Jesus being the fulfillment of the priests of the Old Testament. He's a great high priest. A priest had, in the ancient world, a priest had to sympathize with you, sympathize with your sins, help you when you were in trouble because of your own sinfulness, and uh, guide you and counsel you. But then he goes on to deal with the blood of Christ, the death of Christ. He says that a, a high priest has to offer a sacrifice. And he says that's his main point. In chapter 8, verse 1, he says the main point in what we are saying is that such a high priest has to have gifts and sacrifices. And he begins to talk about the blood of Christ and the sacrifice of Christ. And he works it all out. It all comes to this, I think I would call it the high point of the letter. The high point of the letter, I think, is the passage I've just read for you, verses 11 to 28 of chapter 9. Here's the point where he's dealing with what the blood of Jesus Christ does. It's quite complicated. I don't know whether you could follow everything I read. Probably not. So I was trying to read it nice and clearly for you. But um, it was quite difficult to follow, I'm sure. It's a very compressed argument. You have to take it phrase by phrase because it's so condensed. But here he is working out what the blood of Jesus Christ can do for us. Can I ask you this morning, are you living on the blood of Christ? It's a strange phrase, isn't it? I mean, it's a bit of a, an odd phrase, really. I mean, Christi other people think we're quite weird talking about blood all the time. It all sounds terribly uh, callous and bloodthirsty. It's a strange thing that blood should be so central in the Christian gospel. I mean, you get these ladies, I'm sure there's some here this morning, with, with some crucifix around their neck. Bit of a strange thing, really. Imagine you had a guillotine around your neck, or a, or a hangman's noose. You know, it would be a bit odd carrying a model of a guillotine or a hangman, hangman's noose, a mode of execution. You hang it around your neck as a, as a decoration. Bit of a strange thing to do, really, isn't it? And yet, and yet we do do that. So we have crosses on our back wall sometimes, or outside a church building. Why, why should a symbol of execution be the heart of the Christian faith? Why should a cross be the very heart of the Christian faith? But it is, we're to live upon the cross of Christ, we're to live upon the blood of Christ. Or I could say, we're to live upon the high priesthood of Jesus. Jesus is appearing. Did you notice that word in chapter, chapter 9? It says he's come to appear. Verse 26, he appears before the Father. What's Jesus doing in heaven? Now, the answer is he's appearing, he's showing himself to the Father. He's saying to the Father, look at me, and he's appearing before the Father, saying to God, don't look at them, look at me. And he's pointing to his death, he's pointing to his blood, he's pointing to his cross, and he's saying, you've got to help them because of me. And he's appearing, showing his death and his blood to the Father. So what's it all about? And why, why is it that we are to live upon the blood of Jesus? And I'm asking you, do you live upon the blood of Jesus? In Crisco Fellowship, where I minister a lot, and Nairobi Cinema, where I preach a lot, they often just start the worship with the chorus, all oh, the blood of Jesus, all oh, the blood of Jesus. 
it washes white as snow. And they often begin with that little song before we even start anything else. Do you, do you live upon the blood of Jesus? Well, our writer is working it all out. He first tells us three things that the blood of Jesus will do. We looked at it yesterday. I'm just summarizing for people who were not there. He tells us three things it will do. Number one, it will give us eternal redemption, says verse 12. Number two, it will cleanse our conscience, says verse 14. Number three, it will make it possible for us to get our inheritance, verse 15. Three things the blood of Christ will do for you. Number one, it gives you eternal redemption. Because Jesus died for you upon the cross, when you have him, you have eternal redemption. Redemption means release from bondage and the death penalty and sin and wickedness. It's being rescued by the payment of a price. Redemption is buying your freedom. And the, the cross of Christ gives you redemption. It buys your freedom. God pays the price. In Jesus, God pays the price of what has to be paid for you to be set free. Set free from guilt, set free from a bad conscience, set free from the power of sin, and one day even set free from the presence of sin. One day there'll be no sin at all. There'll be a new heavens, a new earth, and there'll be no sin at all. Never be tempted again in the new world that's coming. It redeems you and it's given to you forever, eternal redemption. And it's given to you, it's yours, you own it. You will never lose it. You notice, if you look at it carefully, that the tense is a past tense. Having got, having obtained, you've got it, it's yours. And then the blood of Jesus will give you daily cleansing. If you confess your sins, God will forgive you. The reason why he'll forgive you is because the, the payment for your forgiveness has been given. If you confess your sins, the Lord says, no, it's all right, you're forgiven. Easy to be forgiven. No matter what you've done, it's, it's easy to be forgiven. So easy. I think of what Charles Spurgeon said, the great Baptist preacher in the 19th century. He said, faith is difficult, but it's, it's difficult because it's easy. Do you, do you follow that? Faith is difficult, it's difficult because it's easy. What he, what he meant was, it is so easy to be forgiven, it's difficult to believe that it can be so easy. <laughs> that, that's, that's what he meant by that. Faith is difficult, it's difficult because it's easy. It is so easy to be saved. It is so easy in itself. It's a bit of a, a miracle, but in itself, it is so easy. Think of that Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16. He'd never been to church in his life. He'd never read his Bible. He didn't know any Christians. He's only heard the gospel a few seconds away by hearing Paul singing songs at midnight. That's the only gospel he knows. And there's an earthquake. Have you ever been in an earthquake? Makes you think about a few things, I can tell you. And uh, he's in an earthquake, and suddenly he's scared out of his life, and he wants to be saved. He says to Paul, what can I do to be saved? What does Paul say? Does he say, well, you better start going to church and trying to live a good life? And he doesn't say that. You better sort of start repenting, he doesn't say that. And he didn't, he said, you know, I, wrote, I wrote Romans last week, let me give you a bit of a Bible. When you read Romans, maybe you might get saved. No, he didn't say that. He just said, believe in Jesus. And that man believed on Jesus, and he was baptised at midnight. He, they didn't, he didn't even say, let's wait till Sunday and we'll baptise you on Sunday. Right there on the spot, on the spot at midnight in that grave, in, in that uh, prison, he went from nothing to being a full member of the Christian church in seconds. 
So, so easy to be saved. You could never have heard the gospel in your life and yet hear it and believe just the little bit that you know and you go from, from death to life in, in seconds. It's so easy. Or think of the, the thief hanging upon the cross with Jesus. You remember, he's turned to Jesus. He said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He, same with him. He'd never been to church. He, he wasn't going to have time to go to church. He'd not been baptised. He'd not lived a good life. He was a robber. He'd been executed for his crimes. But he just says one word to Jesus. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. It's so easy to be saved. And so the blood of Christ gives us eternal redemption and daily cleansing. And then it makes it possible for us to, give, to get our inheritance. And maybe at some time I might come back to that uh, over this weekend. God's giving us all sorts of promises. He promises that we can draw near to him. He promises we have a calling. He promises he'll protect us and care for us. He promises that he'll, he'll give us treasure in heaven. He even has promises for the whole church. Uh, maybe we can come back to that sometime. He's got all of these promises. And if you persist living on Jesus, on his blood, getting your sins forgiven, walking with him, having fellowship with him day by day, drawing near, that, that's, that's this writer's favourite word, he says, let's draw near, let's come close to God, let's get near to God. And if you do that, you may inherit all that God wants to give you. Inheritance in the Bible means what God wants to give you. It's not salvation, it's not heaven. It's what God wants to give you now that you are saved, now that you've become a Christian, now that you've believed, there are promises, things that God is promising to do for you. He promises you have a calling. He promises you have a purpose in life. He promises he's going to use you. He's prom he promises that everything you ever do for him will be somehow laid up as treasure in heaven. And once the, one day you'll hear Jesus saying, well done. He's promising an inheritance, something he wants to give you because he's died for your sins. And he says, for this reason, we may get to our eternal inheritance. He does say the word may. Notice the tenses keep on changing. The first tense, we have obtained eternal redemption. Then second tense, we shall have daily cleansing. And then the third tense, we may get to our inheritance. One, you've got it. The other, you will get it. And the third is there for you. You, you may get it if you pursue this way. If you go by faith and patience and inherit the promises, yeah. you will lay hold of the things that God wants to give you. It's, it's kind of conditional. You may get there if you persist in faith. Yeah. So that's where we've got to. Now, let me carry on then with these points that this writer is making. The next thing he does, it's quite tricky, but I think I'll try and make it clear to you, is he begins to move from the word covenant to the word will. Now, let me read those verses, verses 16 and 17. He says, where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. He switches the word that he uses. Well, it, well it, this is a switch in English. It's not, it's not a switch in Greek. This writer is writing in Greek, and there's no change of word in Greek, but there is in English. The, the word for covenant has actually got two meanings, and he switches the meanings that he's using. He's been talking about covenants. He keeps on saying there's a covenant. God is promising that you will inherit things. He's swearing, he's taking an oath, which is what a covenant is. A covenant is when God makes a promise secure by swearing an oath. That's what a covenant is. It's an oath-bound covenant, an oath-bound promise. 
and he uses the word covenant. But at this point, he, he switches the meaning. In fact, in English, you have, to, you have to change the word. Where a will is involved, it's the same Greek word, but it's got a different meaning, and so in English, we have to, switch, we have to use a different word because the meaning has changed, although in Greek, it's the same word. He uses the same word in a different sense. He, uses, he switches from the idea of covenant to the idea of will. Now, what's the difference between a covenant and a will? Well, I'll tell you, in a covenant, you don't have to die. If, if I'm making some legal contract with you, and I swear you do this for me, and I promise I'll pay you, or I'm going away, you can use my house for, for a year, I promise you can do it. I'm, I'm swearing, I'm, I'm insisting I'm going to do something for you. I don't have to die. There's no death in it. But a will is different. If I make will my property to my children, they're not going to get it until I die. A will involves a death. So there's a difference between a covenant and a will, a, test, a last will and testament. And there are many covenants in the Old Testament, but the people who made them didn't have to die. Abraham swore to Abimelech that he wouldn't uh, interfere with his water wells. No one had to die. It was just promises they were making to each other. But in the case of Jesus, the covenant, the old, the old meaning of the word, the Greek word, covenant, it, it's also the same as, as a newer meaning, a later meaning in the Greek language. Will and testament. It's also a, a kind of testament. And incidentally, we call this our New Testament, don't we? It, it, it's, got, it's the same word. New Covenant, but we actually use the word New Testament. Um, the thing about a testament is you can't get the thing that you're being bequeathed until the person making the testament dies. And so he switches the words, the way in which he's using the word, and he says in the case of Jesus, it's not just a covenant, it's also a testament. He's got to die before you, you get what he's being promised. And so he switches the meaning of the word for, for a couple of verses and then goes back again. This, this blood of Jesus is like someone willing you something in a last will and testament. You're not going to get what you're being promised until the person making the will dies, and then you'll get what he wants to give you. It's the same with Jesus. These things that God is wanting to give us, it comes by the death of Jesus. It comes by the blood of Jesus. Okay, can I digress for a few moments? I think all over the world, people are wandering from this message. We, we call ourselves, well, I call myself, I don't know whether you, you use the word, but I call myself an evangelical. You know what an evangelical is? A person who believes in the old, old gospel. Evangel means gospel. An evangelical is a person who believes the gospel. And for four or five hundred years in Britain, the Christian faith has achieved anything in Britain and in the world has been evangelical. People who hold to the gospel, hold to the blood of Christ. And there have been other versions of Christianity. Uh, the Roman Catholics, they believe a lot in the church. The church has got great power. You have to go to mass and the priest has to offer mass for you and so on and you have to be baptised in a particular way, and you have to believe in the Pope. It's very, it's very churchy. It's very much ceremonies, baptism and mass and so on. It's very uh, ritualistic and churchified. Well, it's a, 
another version of the Christian gospel. Many, many Catholics are saved, I'm not denying that. But uh, it's not evangelical, it's sort of churchy and sacramentalist. And then there is this liberalism. Would you know what I mean by that? People who are sort of vaguely Christian, but they don't believe in the supernatural. The kind of Christian kind of guy who says he believes in Jesus, but um, doesn't really believe that Jesus rose from the dead, doesn't believe in miracles, not sure the Bible's the inspired word of God. He's a sort of Christian. He calls himself a Christian, but uh, doesn't believe very much. He's very sceptical. I, I can think of... Um, as someone has said, I'm getting old. I, I can remember John Robinson of 1960. Do you remember John Robinson of the 1960s? He wrote a book called Honest to God, 1963. He didn't really believe in God. His God was a kind of it. His God was a, a kind of impersonal, or the, the word he used was ground of our being. He's the ground of our being, kind of philosophical it. He didn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. He didn't believe in the second coming. He didn't believe in the virgin birth. He didn't believe in anything worth believing in. But he was the Bishop of Woolwich here in Britain. And uh, so there's those different sort of versions of the Christian gospel. The only one that's really achieved anything is, is the one that really believes the gospel. What's changed the whole history of Britain over four or five hundred years is the evangelical version. In the 16th century, people like Archbishop Cranmer totally changed Britain, but just by the gospel. In the 17th century, the, the Puritans totally changed Britain. Every, everything good about Britain really began in the 17th century. Uh, free, freedom of conscience. It, it was pioneered by Oliver Cromwell in the 17th century. The 18th century, Wesley, Whitfield, they totally changed Britain. The trade union movement comes out of Methodism. John Wesley point, appointed stewards over his, well, you would say, life groups, over his class meetings. And they started doing, in, in factories and business, they started doing in the factories what were they were doing in the church. And they called the, their people shop stewards. It comes straight out of Methodism. They had stewards in their Bible fellowships, they put stewards in their factories. The trade union movement came out of it. Prison reform, Elizabeth Fry, the missionary movement, everything good in the Christian church. Democracy, where does democracy come from? Who were the first people ever on planet Earth to start arguing for the vote? And I can tell you, John Lilburn, he was a soldier in Cromwell's army. They met here in Putney in London, discussing people having the vote. In America, it was Roger Williams, began to argue that ordinary people should have the vote. The, the early Americans didn't like it, they threw him out. He went down the road and he founded Rhode Island State, the first country in the world to give ordinary people the vote. And, and he, these, these guys were the pioneers of democracy. You look at British politics or American politics, you can see what, what democracy's got to nowadays. But it, it began with a movement for the people. Everything good came out of the Christian gospel. 19th century, the missionary movement. It's not only true of England, it's true of other countries as, as well. Go to India. Everything good in India comes out of the missionary movement. Go anywhere in the world, find the oldest school, the oldest hospital, the oldest this. It, they're, always, they're always Christians. So it, Christian gospel has blessed the world everywhere. Why is it that the West is so powerful? In Africa, where I live, people are queuing up to come to the West. A million people have moved into Germany over the last year. Why Germany? They're not trying to get Beijing or, 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 or Saudi Arabia. Why, why are they all trying to get into Germany and, and uh, Britain and Europe? Well, because here's the place where everything 
good comes from, and they, they know it. They're not queuing up to go, to go to Beijing or somewhere. There was a time in Nairobi where I live where the queue at the British High Commission was 48 hours long. You started the queue, you, you queued up all night, and we, we, we would give you cups, cups of coffee all night to keep you alive, and then you queued all the, all the next night as well. 48 hours ahead, you finally get to the, to the beginning of the queue to apply for a visa, probably the answer was no. You'd queue up for 48 hours to try to get a British visa, and probably you wouldn't get it. Everything good is in our world really comes from the Christian gospel. And even things which are bad, that maybe we don't like, if you think about them, they're Christian heresies. I don't know whether you'll understand this, but Marxism is a Christian heresy. It's a sort of love of people wanting to, the workers to uh, be raised up. But it's, it's, a Christian, it's a Christian ethos gone astray. And it, 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 those things began in Europe. They didn't begin in, in some pagan country. I've, I've sat upon the seat myself in the British Museum where Karl Marx wrote Das Kapital. It, it all took place in the West. And it all, it all comes out of the Christian gospel. Now, I say all of that in order to say this, that we are living in an age where we are losing that. We're losing the blood of Christ. We're losing the doctrine of the new birth. And all over, all over the world, the Christian gospel is being lost. It's partly being lost because evangelicals have been so successful. Bible-believing Christians have been so successful that every form of Christian faith wants to call itself evangelical. Have you noticed how everybody, if you, if you read a lot, or if you're in the if you see what's going on in the Christian world, everybody wants to call himself an evangelical. You can get books with, with names like the evangelical homosexual, the evangelical universalist, the evangelical Catholic. My son Calvin has a joke. He says to me, Daddy, one day I'm going to write a book called The Evangelical Muslim. <laughs> and I, know what he mean, I know what he means. Everybody wants to be evangelical. What that means is that the word evangelical is ceasing to have much significance these days. Everybody wants to put themselves under the same umbrella. 40% of America call themselves evangelicals, Bible-believing Christians. They're supporting Donald Trump because he seemed to be a bit closer to them than, than Mrs. Clinton. But um, what it means is we're sort of losing these things. But I'm here to say, don't lose Hebrews. Don't lose the blood of Christ. Don't have a different gospel. The, the old, old gospel that Jesus died upon the cross for our sins. It is an indispensable part of the Christian faith. The doctrine of the new birth, being born again. It's an integral part of the Christian faith. If you change that, you, you've lost the gospel. They came to George Whitfield, the famous preacher, the greatest preacher that England has ever produced in the, in the 18th century. They said to him, Mr. Whitfield, Mr. Whitfield, why, why are you always preaching? You must be born again. And he answered, because you must be born again. <laughs> These things are at the heart of the gospel. The blood of Jesus Christ, the cross, the fact of sin, the need of the new birth. These things are the very heart of the gospel. If you lose that, you're losing the gospel. Don't, don't be misled by everybody in the world. You see, I referred just now when we were, being, when we were talking together about believing that God knows everything that God is all-powerful, that God is good. But I was conscious, as I was saying those things, I was conscious that there are people who don't believe those things. 
There's a book out called Why, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? The answer the writer gives is God can't help it. He's finite, doing his best. To which I answer, that's not the gospel. There are those who say that God doesn't know everything. There are people around today who think that God can make mistakes. You go to him to ask advice and he does the best he can within the situation and down the road something goes wrong. Your marriage goes wrong or this goes wrong and God didn't know everything. So you come back to him again, he says, yeah, well, I didn't know, now, now I'll give you advice now. He, he can make mistakes. In America, they call it open theism. God's open, he's not quite sure what's going to happen. Open theism. I, I bought a book recently in Nairobi saying God is not, the title of it was, God is not angry with you. And the idea is God is so gracious, he never, never, never gets angry. He loves you so much, he doesn't get angry. Actually, there are hundreds of places in the Bible where it says God, God gets angry. A guy's not getting his doctrine from, from, his, from his Bible. The Bible's full of references to the anger of God, God's hatred of sin. This, this verse I've just read to you, without the shedding of blood, without sin being punished, without the anger of God falling upon sin, it, it, it's going to fall upon you or it's going to fall upon Jesus. Jesus died upon the cross to bear the wrath of God against sin. Take the wrath of God away. Take the anger of God away you've got no gospel. But here's a man writing a book saying God does not get angry. Or I could put it like this, that uh, many people nowadays, if, if I can put it this way, I call it doing theology by doing theology, is my name for it. They, they do theology like this, they, they get their doctrine like this, it goes, well God is a God of love. So, so what's love like? Well love is nice, love is forgiving, Love doesn't like hell very much, love. Love just says, no, it's all right. So, so, um, so if God is a God of love, well, there really can't be any hell, there really can't be any kind of anger, God just loves us so much. I call that doing theology by doing theology. It's not quoting scripture. It's not mentioning one verse of the Bible. It's not saying, well, God says this, and God says this, and God says this, and God says this, so this is what we believe. It's not quoting anything. It's just saying, well, let me meditate upon love. It's a kind of meditation upon theological themes without reference to scripture. And so you think, well, I don't understand how there can be hell, so maybe I'll get rid of that. I don't understand how can punish sin, so I'll get rid of that. I can't understand evil, so maybe, maybe God can't help it. You're, you're, not, you're not reading your Bible, you're philosophizing. You're, you're doing your own thinking and coming up with, with, with something which is a good idea. To which I answer, the Christian gospel is not a philosophy, it is a revelation. It is not our philosophizing or thinking what kind of religion we, we might want. It is God telling us that the way things are. Yeah. And actually, this is the proof that it's correct. Do, do you ever have a discussion with a Muslim about the doctrine of the Trinity? Well, I tell you something, if you ever do, you'll lose the argument. You won't be able to win. Some Muslim will say to you, what do you, what do you mean God is one and God is three? That's crazy. Did, did, how, how, what do you mean God, Jesus is the son of God? Did, did God have sex with Mary, he'll say to you? And you won't be able to answer. The only answer you can give him is to say, this is the very proof that this is real. Because nobody would ever have invented a thing that you can't defend. Nobody would come up with some kind of theology that you really can't, you can't defend it. There's only one reason why we believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. We've never come up with that. Some, some guy writing a thesis in the university, he would never come up with something that's totally undefendable. 
There's only one reason why we believe such things, and that is that God has revealed it to us. God has told us this is the way it is. We're not philosophizing, we're letting God reveal himself to us. And so this bloodthirsty, if I could use that word, this kind of bloodthirsty faith of ours, it's revealed by God. We didn't come up with this, it's not our idea. This is God who sent his son and told us, even thousands of years before it took place, he put a kind of picture of it through Israel and through the tabernacle of a God who you can't get to. God is inside the Holy of Holies and you can't get there. You're not allowed to go there. There's curtains and veils. He's inside some holy place and you're not, you're not, you can't get there. There's only one way in which you can get there and that is for someone to go into the very presence of God with the blood of sin that has been paid for. Paid for outside the now given to God. And the outer courtyard stands for this world. Jesus didn't die in heaven. He died in this world. And the blood taken in stands for God's receiving a sacrifice for our sins in the Holy of Holies. These things are revelations. The things that God has revealed to us. And we must not lose them. We mustn't lose them in the preaching of the gospel. We mustn't lose them in the churches. I would think that all over the world at the moment, the gospel is, is under attack in, in new ways. 50 years ago when I was a teenager, John Robinson was around and all these guys were attacking the supernatural in, in, in the gospel. That's all died. It's not, not here, not around anymore. There were Anglican colleges around in this country when I was a boy, when I was a teenager. Those colleges do not exist today because they just died. You see, if you have a God who's just an it, a God who's just a kind of ground of your being, a God who's just a philosophical idea. That God doesn't get any converts. You can't pray to it for a start. It doesn't, it doesn't generate the next generation. It just dies. It's one of the things about Britain. I, I don't know whether you've ever observed this in Britain. Do you notice these churches in Britain which are so big? Such and such Methodist Central Hall. You ever been to Westminster? The Methodist Central Hall. Such a big building. Westminster Chapel, such a big building, the whole 3,000. These gigantic churches. Go and find out the date when they were built. They were all built in the 1850s. And what was happening is the churches were getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Numbers were growing. Half the population was in church every Sunday morning. They said, we need bigger buildings. And they built these great buildings for the huge numbers that were going to come. But they never did come. And those buildings have never, ever in their entire life been used to their capacity. Westminster Chapel has never in its life ever used the top gallery. Never been necessary. Why is that? Well, because in the 1850s, a kind of destructive movement inside the church, not outside the churches, but inside the churches, they began to attack the Bible inside the churches. Once you start attacking the Bible, your numbers begin to go down. Once you start attacking the Bible inside the churches, you begin to die spiritually. Those churches have never, ever been used for, for, the, for the purpose in which they were built, ever in history. Because they began to attack the scriptures and the number of Christians in Europe has steadily, steadily dropped ever since the 1850s. I don't know what the statistic is at the moment, but 10 years or so ago, the statistic was that 16,000 people per day Gets, gets saved in Africa, but 4,000 people per day leave the churches of Europe. 
and within about 10 years in this country, within 10 years, there'll be more Muslims in mosques than Christians in churches. That, that's gonna be true within about 10 years. What is it that almost destroys the churches? It's losing this message. You lose this message, it is suicidal. You lose this message, it is destructive. We need the blood of Jesus Christ. We need the doctrine of the new birth. We look people in the eye and say, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven, as Jesus said to Nicodemus. And so this blood of Jesus is so central. Now, a writer puts it like this, going on a bit. He says, think about the first covenant. He says, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all of the people, he took the blood. And he goes on to say he sprinkled the book and the people. In the old covenant, there would be a sacrifice of an animal, and then you would take the blood, and you would sprinkle it everywhere. You'd sprinkle on, on Mount Sinai when they were inaugurating the Mosaic Covenant, you sprinkle it upon the Book of the Law. You go down and sprinkle it upon the people. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go inside the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle blood upon the altar. He would get, a, he would get the blood of, a, of a, a sacrifice. He would dilute it with water. He would get a hyssop tree, which is a very branchy tree. He would dip the, the branches of the hyssop tree in the diluted blood and water and he would go around sprinkling everything, sprinkling the people, sprinkling the books, sprinkling the curtains, sprinkling the coverings, sprinkling the altar. He would sprinkle everything, almost everything was sprinkled with blood. Everything was, as it were, sprinkled with blood. Why was that? It was a way of saying that everything, every kind of blessing, the entire mosaic system was under this covering, or this, uh, how should I put it, this inauguration of the blood. And he says that symbolises what Jesus does in heaven. And in verse 23, you have the most amazing verse in scripture, I think, or one of the most amazing verses of scripture. <coughs> He says, just as the copies, the pictures, the shadows, the symbolism was all sprinkled with blood. So when Jesus went into heaven, verse 23, he says, it was necessary for the heavenly things themselves to be sprinkled, to be covered with better sacrifices than the old mosaic animal sacrifices. In other words, the teaching is that when Jesus went into heaven, he covered everything with his own blood. It's a very unusual thought. I mean, probably you've never thought about it. It's the, one, of, one of the few verses that talk this way. But one or two others. Remember Jesus said, I, on the Resurrection Sunday, he says, I am going into heaven. He told his disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you. What did he do? What, what did Jesus do to prepare a place for us in heaven? The answer is he took his blood. He covered heaven with his blood. What does that mean? Why, why, why does heaven need the blood of Christ? Well, the answer is because people like you and me have defiled it. We, we've been, as it were, talking to heaven. And we're just sinners. Here's God, as it were, talking to people like us. It, it's as if we are polluting heaven. You remember the book of Job says, even the heaven is not clean in his sight. In his sight. Even the angels, as it were, unclean before him. You know those verses in the Old Testament. It's as though heaven itself is, uh, as it were, defiled by dealing with people like us. Our sinful prayers, our prayers, all their weaknesses and their imperfections have gone into heaven. It's as though heaven itself needs to be cleansed. And God has put heaven under the covering 
of the blood of Jesus Christ. I wonder whether you've ever thought about that. Or, or let me ask you another question. The Bible tells us that um, the sinfulness of our world didn't begin with us, it began with Satan. Remember, if you know your Bible, that the Bible says that Satan fell before we fell. There was a fall in the heavenly realm. And when Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, Satan comes to tempt them. There's evil there even before they've sinned. There's a fall before the fall. There's something evil in our world before Adam and Eve sinned. Satan had fallen first. He, he wasn't created a, an evil being. Satan had fallen. There's a fall before the fall, if you see what I mean. Now, here's my question. Could that ever happen again? When we get to heaven, when we get to our final glory, could, could somehow Satan come back or could something go wrong? And, and could the thing all happen again? Could, could what, there be another fall? Could, could we lose what we get in the final glory? They were in paradise and they lost it. Could it happen again? Answer, no. Because Jesus has been dealing with sin and he's put heaven under the protection of his blood. He sprinkled heaven to make it protected and owned and guarded. And if you say to me, well, I can't, I can't understand that, I will say to you, no, nor can I. I'm not trying to understand it, I'm trying to believe it. That heaven itself has been put under the covering of the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's why there can, that's why there can never be another fall. This, this is why, even though our, our wicked ways of coming to heaven, as it were, and defiled it, it's all been cleansed, it's all been dealt with, the sin has been paid for, everything's been covered. When we get to heaven, it's, it's all under the protection of the fact that Jesus has died for all sin everywhere. Sin has been dealt with. You notice that phrase he uses? He says, he's appeared to put away his sin. He's dealt with, he's banished it, he's removed it from having any significance in our world. It's more than just that sin has been forgiven. Sin has been conquered. Sin is like a kind of realm. It's like a kind of kingdom. And Jesus has conquered that kingdom and dealt with it forever by the power of his blood. And he's gone to heaven and put heaven under the protection of his blood. Well, I don't know about you, but I find these things stretch my mind. They stretch our imagination. They stretch our understanding to the limits. But surely... We have to, if God has told us these things, we have to gird up the loins of our mind and get hold of them. God, God doesn't tell us anything we don't need. God puts something in his word and it's there for us. Don't, don't, don't reject something that God says to us. And he tells us, just as the blood of the animal sacrifices cleansed everything in, in the copies, in the pictures, in the symbolism of the tabernacle, the fulfilment of that is that if the heavenly realm has all been put under the covering of the blood of Jesus. Why does he use the word sacrifices? Why does he use the word pl plural, sacrifices, not the word sacrifice singular? Well, sometimes in the New Testament you'll find a word is plural because it means many applications of something, many samples of something. Remember Romans chapter 12 says, I appeal to you by the mercies of God. Could have said, I appeal to you by the mercy of God. But it doesn't. It says, I appeal to you by the mercies. Why is it plural? Because there's so many different ways in which God is merciful. He's merciful here and here and here and here and here and here. So I appeal to you by the many, many, many mercies of God. It's so big and, and uh, it's applied in so many different situations. 
So the sacrifices, God applies the blood of Jesus here and here and here and here. Every area there is, he covers it. The sacrifices, it's the one sacrifice of Jesus applied everywhere. So it becomes a kind of plural thing. The sacrifices that are all involved in the one sacrifice of Jesus. He covers everything by his blood. Why is it all necessary? Well, he tells us it's necessary because of sin. The reason why the blood was shed everywhere in the tabernacle is because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This blood is dealing with sin. What's happening, this is what God says, what happens with Jesus is he bore our sins in his body on the tree. When, when Jesus was dying upon the cross, it is, if, it is as if Jesus became the sinner, the sinner who's committed every sin that there ever was committed, and all the sins of the entire world are laid upon Jesus. And he bears the punishment, he pays the price for the sins of the whole world. It's as if he were the sinner. And without that, there's no forgiveness. You see, the one thing that God, God can't do, and he's asking me, what guys were influential in my life, and I said Packer and Lloyd-Jones and a few others. I remember hearing something that Lloyd-Jones said when I was a teenager. I was here in Westminster Chapel when I was about 17 or something, and I heard him say, the problem of sin was such a big problem, it was a problem even to God. The problem of sin is such a big problem it's a problem even to God. Even God has difficulty in being able to forgive us. And the reason why God has a little bit of difficulty in being able to forgive us is because God is so pure and righteous and holy. The one thing God can't do is to say, well, let's pretend it didn't happen. Let's just forget it. I'll ignore it. Let's pretend it didn't happen. So, right, you can go. No, even God can't do that. The problem of sin is so big, it's a problem even to God. Even he, I can't say, well, we just pretend it didn't happen, I'll just ignore it. No, no, God doesn't ignore sin, he deals with it. She's not the same as ignoring it. And he deals with it by transferring it off of you and putting it upon Jesus. He says, I'll send my son, and my son will live a perfect, righteous life, and I'll put my, your sins upon my son, and I'll deal with them in my son, I'll punish him instead of you. Not that God was punishing Jesus personally. God wasn't punishing Jesus personally. He wasn't punishing Jesus himself. But he was punishing us in Jesus. He was dealing with our sins. And without that dealing with sins by the blood of Jesus upon the cross, there is no forgiveness. You can be religious, but you'll never know, you'll never know God without the blood of Jesus. You can go to church, you can read your Bible, you can try and live a good life. You won't know God. You won't have your conscience clean. You won't feel clean without believing in the blood of Jesus. You see, if when you see that cross, it releases you. If Jesus bore your sins, you don't have to bear your sins. If Jesus was treated as though he were guilty, then you don't have to be guilty. If sins were put upon him, they're not upon you. The only way you can, as it were, be released and know that sins have been dealt with, it's been punished, you say, oh, my, my sins need to be punished. I answer, they've been punished already. So it's already been done. Someone has borne the punishment for you. And so you don't need to be punished yourself. And without that blood, that was the symbolism of the Old Testament. Without the shedding of blood, 
there is no forgiveness of sins. And it pictured something in Jesus. Without the blood of Jesus, there's no forgiveness. And again, I'm quoting my early years at hospital when I was a teenager and I was first thinking about these things. I used to put my sins, as it were, on Jesus one at a time. I felt guilty about something. I would say, no, Lord, I'm putting it on Jesus. It's not me, it's him. And I would put it on Jesus. Now, don't blame me, blame him. You can actually put your sins one at a time on Jesus. You've done something you shouldn't do. Let it be on Jesus. It doesn't have to be on you. If you're guilty about something, well, Jesus was guilty. You don't need to feel guilty. He's forgiven you. You can forgive yourself. You can feel released and forgiven by the blood of Jesus. When you believe that, it cleanses your conscience, makes you feel clean. You're able to serve the living God. So I ask you again, are you living on the blood of Jesus? Are you living on the fact that Jesus is appearing for you? He's there as your representative. He's saying, I'm the one that stands for them. I'm the one that represents them. He's saying to the Father, don't look at them, look at me. I'm here to represent them. He's lived a perfect life. You're not living a perfect life, but nobody is. You say, well, I'm not good enough to, to have anything to do with God. You don't have to be good enough. He's good enough for you. He's lived the life that you should have lived. He's been totally, utterly obedient to the Father. And God looks at you through him. He, he looks at you as though you were Jesus. He looks at you through Jesus. Jesus is there representing you. You feel that you're so bad that you ought to be punished. Well, you've been punished. You've been punished already. You feel that maybe you're not going to survive in Judgment Day or Judgment Day God might condemn you. No, no, you've been through Judgment Day. Don't you know that? When you believe in Jesus, God pronounces you not guilty. I declare you not guilty. You've been through Judgment Day already. It's in the past. He's already declared you righteous in Jesus. That bit of Judgment Day, you're the other side of it. It's never going to come up. Those things that make you feel you might get condemned one day, they're not even on the agenda of Judgment Day. There are other things on the agenda, but not that. Your status, your position, your acceptance by God, it's been dealt with. That's why this writer says he's done it to put away sin. It's, it's been put out of the picture. It's not in the picture anymore. It's been put away. It doesn't come into your situation. You're transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son. You've died to sin. You've died to sin. The person you were, the old person, Romans chapter 6, the old person has died. That old person doesn't exist anymore. You're risen with Christ. Imagine, imagine it were possible. Imagine I were to die here at this lecture. And I'm finished and I'm dead upon the ground. And then five minutes later I come alive again. But when I come alive again, I'm not in St Albans, I'm in, I'm in New York. It'd be cheaper on the airfares, wouldn't it? Imagine you die and come alive again, but when you come alive again, you're in a different country. You're somewhere else. But that's exactly what has happened to you. When you believe in Jesus, that person you were, that person died. You die to sin and you come alive again. But when you come alive again, you're not in the same kingdom. You're in a new kingdom. You've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son. You come alive again in a new realm, a new territory. You're finished with sin. You've died to it. Not in that realm at all. It can't condemn you. It's not going to be ultimate power. Satan can contempt you, can contempt you, but he's, he's not got any authority. He's, as it were, shouting over the wall, but he, he can't get hold of you. You're not in his kingdom. He's dealt with sin by the blood of his son. My friends, this, this is not something which 
philosophers would ever understand. You won't find some university professor coming up with this. It's too incomprehensible for him. His little puny mind can't take in things like this. These things are not philosophy. They're revelations. These are things that God reveals to us. And the strange thing, well, it's like a mobile phone. I've no idea how all these intricacies of a mobile phone work. But I could still press a button and talk to my wife in Nairobi in 10 seconds. I don't need to know the theory. It's beyond me. But I can pick up that phone and phone someone 5,000 miles away. You don't have to understand everything to be able to use it and, make, and to show it's real, it works, it operates. And the Gospel's like that, so you don't completely understand these things. God is one, God is three. Jesus died upon the cross for our sins. You don't completely understand them. Why is it all like this? You don't completely understand it. I'm not asking you to understand it. I'm asking you to believe it. And if you will believe it, you'll find it works. It cleanses your conscience. It gives you the spirit, makes you feel clean, gives you power, you're able to live a new life, comforts you when, you, when you're in trouble, you'll be, you'll be, you, you won't be afraid to die. It works. You'll know the Father, you'll know the Son, you'll know the Holy Spirit, you'll know you're a kingdom of heaven. It, 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 you can prove it's true. You see, you may say, well, I believe all these things if you, if you could prove them to me. But you see, that's, that's not how proof works. In the Bible, you don't prove God and then believe. You believe God and then he proves himself. Believe him and he'll prove himself to you. God said to Moses, remember what God said to Moses? He said, he said the sign that I'm sending you is when you brought the people out of Egypt, you'll worship me on this mountain. That'll be the sign that I've really called you. If I'd been Moses, I think I might have wanted to say, Lord, I'd rather, have, I'd rather you have the proof before I go, not after I come back. But you get the proof after you've responded. You get the proof when you believe. Believe in these things, live this way. And God will prove himself to you. You'll have a clear conscience, have spiritual power, be born again, be a new person in Jesus. You'll live by the blood of Jesus. When you're in trouble, you call upon your great high priest. He's there for you. He ever lives to make intercession for you. He's bringing many sons to glory, says Hebrews. You live upon him. And he proves himself to, to you to be a great and a powerful saviour in your lives. But I'm asking you, do you live this way? Do you live upon the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ? Let's stand and let's pray together as we close our meeting. Our Father, I pray that you will teach us these things. We, we believe them anyway, but we pray that you will write them into our hearts and give us a little understanding of your word. We pray that these things that you declare to us in scripture may get hold of us and we may know that they're true and live upon them and find that you prove them to be true in the way in which you bless us and work in our lives. Teach us these things, help us to lay hold of them and believe them. Help us to take in the very heights and depths and lengths and breadth of your scriptures and your great salvation so that we feel your power and your grace and your Holy Spirit in our lives. Do these things for us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.